Welcome to the MTB Tribe Podcast, your trail map for the world of mountain biking. And now, I'll introducing your host, Gareth Beckett. Hello there, mountain bikers, and thanks for being here, and welcome to episode number 36 of the MTB Tribe Podcast. I'm here to help you find out more about mountain biking how to get out on the trails, keep you stoked and hopefully learn a little more about mountain biking and the people involved. So thanks so much for being here and this week's episode is a clinker. I am really excited about who I have on the show for you guys this week. Um, Real insight into the industry real insight into local brands that um, we all know and love of course so um, it's really good but before I get to that I just want to say a big thank you to all the guys that have supported the podcast by subscribing you can do that if you're interested go to www.mtb-tribe.com and hit the subscribe link there just fill in your your email address and there you go that's all you need you will get updates of the episodes coming out when they're coming out and a short synopsis of what's in the episodes and just a quick link to go through to the website so you can easily listen to that so thank you so much i also want to say a big thank you to the guys that are um, reviewing the show on iTunes thanks so much it helps the show be found a lot easier and it just makes my job being here a lot more worthwhile because I know more people are listening and the information's getting out there and the feedback I'm getting is really good as well so that that is brilliant so thanks so much for doing that I appreciate if you're doing that so if you want to take a couple of minutes out of your day and do that just go to iTunes fill in a review there and five stars obviously is always the best thing to do, of course. Um, so that would be great if you guys would do that. But I really do appreciate it. You can also find the show and get involved with the show on socials. We are on Instagram at MTB Tribe and Facebook MTB Tribe. So if you want to follow us there, that would be great as well. And now on today's show, I am super stoked about this one because have you ever thought or wondered? why Sam Hill is riding a nuke-proof bike. Well, there are many moving parts involved in that process, but a major reason is because of today's guest. Now, our guest today has worked throughout the industry and almost fallen into it by mistake. But whenever he has, he's made the most of it and and really made his expertise. And whatever he's been doing or learning count in that field. So I'm really excited to have him on today. He's worked for Chain Reaction Cycles in the past. He started there actually selling on the phones and, and giving mechanical kind of um, expertise or guys wanting to buy parts or upgrade and stuff like that. That's how he started. He then worked as a mechanic on the World Tour. He was wrenching there for four or five years. Um, but moved back to Chain Reaction Cycles and became the product designer for Nuke Proof Bikes. He worked his way through that very quickly and ultimately became the brand manager for Nukeproof. So when you see Sam Hill on a Nukeproof bike, the reason he's on that is because of today's guest, who is Alistair Beckett. Now, Alistair designed, put a lot of effort into the bikes that you see Sam Hill riding. And he really changed the brand. Alistair really changed that brand and was really committed to build Nukeproof and to make it become a success. 
Um, so I'm so excited to have him on because I, I love the whole brand building kind of thing that goes into any industry and how you get it in market and all that. It really is cool. And I really needed a couple more hours with Alistair, to be honest. But we chat about that. We chat about his background. We chat about the CRC days. Everything to do with that is very good. Um, and Alistair has just quite recently left CRC to work in his own project called Redburn Designs. We chat about that also. And you can find out how that can help you and, and what Redburn's design is and how Alistair is taking his expertise almost to the next level with working with factories, bike factories, etc., etc. So it is really interesting. It's interesting times for Alistair. Um, and, uh, you know, he's such a cool guy. I'm super stoked to have him on the podcast. I never, ever thought I could get somebody like Alistair Beckett on the podcast, to be honest. Um, but there you go. So uh, the power of media and all that. Huh? So listen, thanks so much for being here. Chill out, get your headphones on if you're traveling to work, whatever way you're listening to this, on your phone, on your laptop, on your PC, whatever it is, um, check it out. Alistair's a cool guy. Find out more about a local brand, a local success. The Euro World Champions riding a brand from Belfast, folks, is pretty awesome, you know? So find out more about that with Alistair on today's episode of the MTB Tribe podcast. So let's welcome Alistair to the show. Hi Alistair, welcome to the MTB Tribe podcast. It's awesome to have you on here. I am super stoked to have you on the podcast, you know. Hi Gareth. Yeah, no, I'm thrilled to be <laughs> on it. <laughs> thanks for the uh, <laughs> thanks for the invite. It's great to get an opportunity to chat some rubbish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but no, I, I'm super stoked to get you on because I know you're big into brand development and all that side of things, and I'm very interested in that as well. And getting getting brands to market and all that, I think it's mm. I think it's really fascinating, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for the guys listening, if they don't know your name, you're the biggest player behind the Nuke Proof brand, and we know how that's went with Sam Hill on it and Kellen Grant, and mm. you know, so you've been very successful on that side of things. So. We'll get we'll get into that. I, I'm super super keen to to chat to you about that. Um, yeah. But uh, you're you're um, Alistair Beckett two T's. I'm a Beckett two T's. I know. Yeah. I wonder if there's a connection there. <laughs> Long lost brother or something. It must uh, be. You never know. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> there's not too many Becketts about with double there's T's. Not, no, there's not. Funny when you do hear about one, you do sort of think, oh, I wonder is there a wee connection there? Small, small island, and it. You always think there must be. You must know somebody through somebody, yeah. somebody or other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I we have filtered down in from Scotland. Saw so at some stage, I think. I, I've heard. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I've heard the same. I've heard the same story. <laughs> Classic. Um, so listen, before we go down the uh, the World Cup and the chain reaction rabbit holes and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Let's get a little background on yourself because you didn't get into to the bike industry in the normal kind of fashion. You had a slightly you had a slightly different route. So when did you first get interested in bikes? Um, I think it was whenever I whenever I joined grammar school. So I'd done my I'd done primary school, moved across, and um, joined grammar school. And there was a guy in the in the class called Andrew, and he. I felt we became friendly with him as you do meeting all new friends a whole new school and, and he uh he did a bit of mountain bike racing locally you know just we cross-country races and he was always saying to me I should come across and do it so I thought 
I'll, I'll, I'll go and I'll go and give it a go. So I, I, I dusted off. I had a wee rigid mountain bike back then. I don't know some wee Townsend thing or whatever my mum must have bought me years ago. <laughs> I think it was blue. That's all I remember about it. Um, so I, I dusted it off and went over and met him. And I, I don't even think I went mountain biking with him first. I think we just went straight in and did a race. You know, really? A wee, a wee cross. Uh huh. I think so. Just a wee cross country race in Bangor, um, in uh, in Ward Park. They had a wee, I think it was a wee winter league. Right, so, you, so you'd never really been out on the, or you hadn't been out on the bike for ages, and then Andrew exactly. just, yeah, so you, yeah, you uh-huh. squirt a bit of oil, a bit of oil around, around the crank, and you go out, and probably did, go. I probably didn't even do as much, Gareth, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was it, really, I just went and did, did a wee, a wee cross-country race, and I was hooked, I thought it was brilliant, Um, absolutely loved it, and it was at the bottom, it, 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 the start line was at the bottom of a wee BMX track in, in Ward Park, unfortunately yeah. it's not there anymore, but um it was it was brilliant crack I and uh, i didn't know didn't know much about biking or racing or anything at that point i just thought mm-hmm. it was something to, something to do you know in the in the free time but i know yeah. really loved it uh, really enjoyed it and uh, where's ward park at also where's that it's in bangor um so i i grew up mostly in newton ards um and bangor was about six or seven miles across the way so funny i used to have to cycle to the race and <laughs> do oh, the race yeah, then cycle home absolutely, absolutely badger um but sure you're young at that point you've got plenty of energy but uh, yeah ward park's in bangor um there's a big leisure center there now they actually ended up flattening the the bmx track that it was at mm. um a couple of years back to build a to build a car park or something for this leisure center ironically um right. and uh but the, the rest of the park's still there, and you can still you can still see the wee tracks and stuff. Every now and again, I would have gone for a wee scoot around the place, and you could see some of the old the old cross country track that was all taped out and stuff. But it's like it's fairly overgrown now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that's where it was. Cool. And so after that first XC race, then mm-hmm. what happened to keep your interest? Did you just keep hanging around with Andrew, and did you just keep going to races and stuff? Pretty yeah, pretty much. Uh-huh. I think I did another couple of races there, and then I was sort of starting to. I was getting really into it and getting excited about it, and I begged and begged my dad, and my dad bought me a, a new bike then for for Christmas. Um, I remember it was a wee giant. It was a giant full suspension bike, but the pedals were attached to the rear triangle, and all that was that was useless. I remember the day. It, I remember the day it arrived. In the post, you know, it came from. I must have come from England or something. He ordered it online, um, and it arrived. And the forks were broken. They must have got damaged in the post, and I was devastated because I'd waited and waited and waited for this thing to arrive. Oh no! And it arrived, and it was broken. I had to wait for new forks to come. And uh, but anyway, when it did arrive, that was me absolutely hooked. I loved it, and mm. uh, I'd ride this full suspension bike, which was nothing like it, it wasn't designed for cross country at all a bit like myself and uh, <laughs> we would still try and race it around the place um but then I, i'd ended up finding myself having more fun riding around the bmx track and doing the jumps uh, and stuff there so i very quickly ended up finding that that was probably a bit more appealing to me and, and that was that was what i wanted to do and the and the same guy that had got me into it andrew he he did a bit of, he, he did a bit of everything he had a bmx and a wee dirt jump hardtail and stuff so I uh, negotiated to buy his old BMX off him, which weighed a ton. It was a, a big mongoose right. white BMX. I, don't I think it was a Fuzzy Hall Signature Edition, and it weighed a metric ton. The thing must have, I don't know, 40 pounds or something. It was horrendous. Yeah. So if you could jump out over jumps, you could. there was there was no limit to your, your what, skills. What kind of, when was that? What year would that have been, roughly? I'd say I was probably 13 or 14 years old by this stage, mm-hmm. I reckon. Uh, and then from there, I just started. I started really loving the BMX riding, and then I fell into 
there was a group of guys riding around Newton Ards. There was a bit of a, a BMX street scene had developed. Um, you know, and mm-hmm. there was a, a good friend, good friend of mine, Dylan. Um, he, he sort of he lived in Bangor, but him and I would have would have ridden BMX together. And then he introduced me to the rest of the guys. Um, and Ben Reed would have been one of those guys riding BMX at the time, and I didn't realize that the t- you know he was doing all the mountain bike racing. Apart from I'd yeah. seen him at those cross country races, him and his brother would have done the cross country races at the time. Um, and I think I actually think that's why I bought a Giant because they were riding for uh, riding Giant bikes at the time um, right, okay. through the through the local the local bike shop. Bike so sponsorship, sponsorship. It was effective. It does, yeah. I guess so. <laughs> Uh, must have been so I'm only thinking about that now right now mm-hmm. uh, but that was that was it so that got into the BMX and that was me then for for a load of years I loved it but I, you know I still liked mountain biking as well I, I, I was a bit of a jack of all trades I never really mm-hmm. dedicated myself to one particular thing I, I liked riding the mountain bike I liked the BMX I you know I would have picked up any bike at one point I rode a bit of mountain bike trials that's incidentally how I met Lewis um in, from Mac Monkey was was from riding right. trials from Newton Hards and Bangor and stuff um, that was a strange old sport as well. You ended up breaking more things than than anything. Yeah. So, and I know you've done everything. You've done a week, You've done downhill. You've done enduro and all. Were you doing them at that? I know enduro probably wasn't around kind of at that stage. But no. were were you were you doing that? How how did you progress into these other different kind of you know the downhill yeah. stuff and all? Well, I think it was just through meeting people. You know, I was yeah. riding the bikes and then. Through, through riding BMX with Ben, I got interested in, in what he was doing in the downhill. So he dragged me across to some of the downhill races, and I did did one or two of those. And they they scared the life out of me at the time. You know, I really was just terrified of these tracks. And you think back to Money Scalp, you know, that was the Winter League downhill track at the time, and it's it's flatter than most enduro tracks now. But for some reason, I don't know, it was all new to me. I was I was terrified of it. But I did a, did a couple of downhill races and. And uh, never really, you know, I, I enjoyed it, but it never really grabbed me. I was never going to be a downhill racer, you know, and even to this day, I suppose that's still the mantra. I was, I was far from a, a professional athlete by any means. Um, but but that's that sort of led me down a path, I guess, and and showed me what different disciplines were out there. And and as and when you got more involved with each one, you, again, you met a different group of people that did, you know, did that discipline or did something else, and were from different parts of the country and stuff so uh it was it was brilliant really enjoyed it all yeah and what was the mountain bike scene like then was it taking off was it getting popular was there many trails was there many shops that sold mountain bikes what was the scene like yeah I, I, there were a couple there was more local bike shops back then you know there was like i said there was bike works in bangor and i would have that's where i would have gone and and bought the parts from a bmx or from a mountain bike you know and i used to as i grew up and got a bit older i was going through school i realized i needed money to buy all these parts you know so i would have done wee summer jobs working in the factory in bangor and and that would have built me you know built up a wee bit of money and at the end of the at the end of the summer i'd have cycled you know two minutes down the road to the wee bike shop there and and got a new wheel or got new tires or whatever um but the scene i don't know i suppose i was reasonably new to it so i didn't really understand understand it at that stage um I think it was a really good it was a really good scene I, I think it's probably bigger now there's more and more people that are into bikes and are getting into bikes now you know back then it was probably you'd go to a race and it, I suppose it's similar in ways to today but you'd go to a race and you would you know everybody would know everybody and and it was it was bikers that were racing it but it was also bikers that were organizing it and it was their families that were doing sign on and registration and you know it was a very good tight community um and i think it's only 
it, it has only developed and grown and, and it's only done that through the love and the passion of the people that have been involved in it so far so it, it definitely it definitely has grown and developed since i ever got started but you know it was well established even before i before i found bikes you know there's there's people that as i went through my career working with you know you'd talk to them and you and you know they were like oh we used to run such and such a series or we were involved in this and you know i never knew half the stories that went on before i you know before i found cycling so it's it's definitely been alive and kicking in this country for for a long time and it is it's definitely on an upward spiral you know which is great it's great to see and i think you know the recent success is that you know some of the people in the industry from this country have have really started to elevate mountain biking and cycling in general you know in the, in the worldwide um, domain, I suppose, because there's you, you've got lots of personalities that have either done a job or they've raced or they've you know been involved in the industry in some form or other. And coming from the country of Northern Ireland and Ireland, that's not easy to do because you're 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 remote, you're away from everything else, and there, there's quite a lot of people that have, I guess, either been fortunate or they've made the right choices or they've worked really hard to try and reach out into the bigger the bigger industry and and participate in some form or other and i think it's brilliant and i would encourage more and more of that you know i think i've been very fortunate to have had the opportunities that i've had to to let me be part of that as well and i i admire a lot of the people that that have done the same thing so far yeah well that that's the beautiful thing about mountain biking i think it still has that same community if you know what i mean it's that real community feel to it and everybody's quite social and friendly definitely you don't get that in all kind of sports you know Mm, yeah no it's i think it's it's something that's uh i don't think it'll ever change i think that's it's a very it's a sport it's a hobby sport you know people get into Mm. it and they it costs them a fortune to do it so they you know and i think you know they're probably looking at everybody else that's doing it thinking oh you're as skint as me now after buying that bike yeah you know you've got a lot of common ground (laughs) a lot of common ground to talk about but it is it's a great family thing and all that's what's good about the races you know racing's not for everybody and you know i don't know if i'm cut out to be a racer but i do see what people love about it in the week you know you go down for the weekend and you set up your tent or your camper or whatever and you know it's it is it's like a it's like a second family almost and Mm -hmm. as i've traveled you know been fortunate enough to travel around the world and see different race scenes in different countries you know outside of what what ireland has it's the same story all the way around the world you have these little tight-knit communities that are you know just out to help everybody and doing it for the for the love of it you know nobody's there's very few people that are making money through racing bikes or being involved in bikes but you don't do it for that reason you know you you do it because it's it's what you love and you can call you know you can call your passion a you know a a reason to make a living essentially Mm -hmm. for some people yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and it's amazing you know you hear great stories like i had j mike on the podcast um it won't it'll have aired by the time this one comes out but he was saying that when he initially got into it (laughs) he went up to do a site and run of the lap didn't really know what he was doing and ended up getting talking to glenn o'brien who was the man the main man still is the main man obviously but was the main man then and glenn was telling him oh no no don't take that line take this line you'll you'll save x amount of seconds here you'll Uh get better into this corner you know that to me is amazing because Mm. in other environments you know your competitor would be like well tell him as little i actually tell him the wrong (laughs) way to go down that that yeah you know yeah i thought that was amazing yeah, no, it is. It's brilliant, and it is that shared people. You know, most people I've worked with. There's a particular man, and and you know that I worked with for a while would be the polar opposite. He would try and throw you off a, off the scent as much as he could. But <laughs> he, a, he knows who he, he knows who I'm talking about. But um, uh-huh. it is there's a real shared sort of will of everybody wanting to 
to help each other out and, and progress and improve at the sport. And I think it's I think it's brilliant. I, I certainly wouldn't have got to the the point of being able to ride the bike the way I could without people helping you out and giving you advice. And mm-hmm. you th- you know you look back now five years ago and you think why on earth was I doing that when I was trying to ride or trying to you know tackle this bit of trail? But it's only it's just time and education i suppose improve those things but the more you know the more someone else can help you the, the better and, and it, this this community you know this country is definitely very very good at, at sharing that sort of stuff yeah definitely definitely right okay before we get into your world cup mechanic and, and stuff like that mm. tell us a wee bit about um or the interesting story really about about school and how you got into mechanical <laughs> engineering yeah, yeah, interesting is a word. Um, <laughs> I suppose I, it was a long, long time ago, I remember going, I never knew what I wanted to do, you know, with my life and, and, and in school, I wouldn't have been the most academic of pupils. Um, you know, the subjects that I enjoyed, I, I did well at, and the ones I didn't enjoy, well, I didn't, I, I just didn't put the effort in, I didn't see why there was any, any need to, you know. Um, and I got, I remember going to careers advice class, I don't know what age, I was very young, and they, you know, you plugged in all these these questions and answers and things and it, it spat out a you know a message and said this is what you should be and i was like what i could what, what on earth can this be I, honestly i'd love to get a hold of that software now but um <laughs> i plugged in all my answers to these questions and it told me oh yes industrial design that's what you should do and i didn't even know what industrial design was at that point i thought what on earth you know what what on earth is this um anyway so thought no more of it carried on through the next couple of years of grammar school and then you've got two final years you've got sixth lower and sixth upper and I went through sixth lower, not really, you know, by that stage, I was just obsessed with bikes. All I wanted to do was ride a bike. I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't really focus enough on on uh, on school. And I didn't even check my grades whenever I'd done the end of year tests. So I went, went and, you know, summer came, happy days. It was finally here. Uh, rode my bike all summer, played around with my mates, you know, and then the first day of final year, sixth upper came around and I got my uniform off and went into school. And there was a big, you know, assembly of, you know, welcoming all the students back and all this. And I, I felt a wee tap on the shoulder and it was the vice principal. She says, would you come with me? I'm like, what's this about here? And went outside and she broke the news to me that you do realise you didn't actually get the grades to get back in. <laughs> so I thought, oh, Christ, right, what do I do here now? You know, first of all, mum's going to kill me because she's bought me a new uniform. Oh, um, no. And then I thought, right, well, I'm a, a better flipping find something to do with my life here and, and I remember from doing the cross-country races in Manger in Ward Park it was right beside you know the local college so I luckily was just old enough to drive so I jumped in the car and drove across to, to Bangor to the college and walked in and I was like what right what do I do here how do I get enrolled because that was the first day most people were starting back you know everybody was already yeah. signed on to classes and I think I looked at asked to go at reception what courses were available still had spaces and she said there was something I can't remember what the other subject was but one of them was mechanical engineering and I thought right well, that sounds and that sounds all right I'm not really still quite sure what that is but I'll give it a go so off I went down mm-hmm. and did a quick interview managed to get a quick interview with the uh, the tutor there and he a guy called Stephen McKinley and funny enough he's still there today teaching that was probably 12 or 13 years ago maybe more um so anyway he he managed to get me enrolled um and that was it so I did the next uh, I did the next two years as a mechanical engineering student um and I loved it and and, uh, and the big thing there was that they had just started to teach um you know the 3d design and the SolidWorks software um, again, I, I had no idea what it was before, but the uh, I had quite a lot of classes every week that were based around SolidWorks. Um, so they, they taught us the basics of it at the time, and and I started to get really interested in it for some reason. I, don't, I couldn't tell you why. I just I really liked creating, 
you know, mm. shapes and creating products with it. And uh, and then I would, you know, I because I was so fascinated with bikes at the time, you know, and that's all I wanted to do, I started to bring, you know, smuggle my bike parts in, especially the ones that had broken. If I'd broken a, a crank or something off a bike, I'd smuggle it in my rucksack. And then I'd race through the assignments, you know, and oh, the tutors couldn't work out why I kept being the first guy to get all my assignments done. Usually everyone tried to leave it to the last minute, but I would try and race through my SolidWorks assignments in class so that I'd have, you know, the, the second half of the class to model my own my own bike mm-hmm. parts. Um, and I was still I was still learning by that stage. I remember trying to design a frame. It was a replica of a, an intense M1 frame or something. But I, I didn't quite know the standards, the hub space and that stuff at that stage. So from from the from the side profile it looked perfect. And then you turned it around and it must have had a fifty mil rear hub space and the thing was like a it was like a fish. It was <laughs> far too skinny. Um but I spent ages and ages just redesigning and, and modeling and measuring all my, my bike parts and, and and that I think just taught me you know the do's and don'ts and the ways of of doing it all so uh i really enjoyed it and uh, there were bits of the classes that i didn't enjoy you know electrical engineering a bit like back in school where you know if i was enthusiastic about it i would do really well if i didn't get excited about it maybe not so much um, i suppose that's maybe the still the case uh, these days unfortunately but i i think it is well i was <laughs> i was exactly the same yeah exactly the same. yeah but yeah. Uh, time went on anyway so i did ended up doing four years um of the mechanical engineering there um, and finished an HND and, and you did a final year project with another company in Bangor. It was, I really enjoyed it. I, I had a great time studying, a great time, you know, spending time in the workshops. You know, they had a full fleet of CNC machines and lathes and you would get very hands-on. You do lots of projects there. So a typical engineering course, I suppose, for, for a lot of people. But um, I really enjoyed it and I enjoyed creating stuff. But it was intense. It was an intense four years. You know, and at the same time, I was riding my bikes and, you know, racing a bit here and there and, you know, just enjoying enjoying life, but having to work quite hard to get through it all. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So let's introduce Chain Reaction Cycles then, because mm. that came after mm. your stint in college. Yeah. Were you, th- were you even thinking in college at that time that you wanted to work in the bike industry, designing or doing anything like that? Um... I don't think, again, I don't think I knew what I wanted to do. You know, mm-hmm. I just, I was going, I suppose I was living hand to mouth. I was going through what, what was exciting at the time. And at that time, the engineering was exciting. But after four years, I was a bit burnt out of it. And I, I'd, I needed a wee rest. And I thought, well, I need to earn some money because these bikes are getting expensive. And as much as the college is great, they're not helping me make any bikes. So I'm going to have to start buying yeah. this stuff. So I thought, well, I'll take a wee break and I'll get a wee job and I'll see what I'll, I'll see if that helps me, you know, work out what it is I want to do. And at the time, Chain Reaction was was it was only just on my radar. I'd heard people talking about it um, and I hadn't I didn't really know all that much about it. Um um, but I, I found out that they were looking for sales staff or something to you know answer phones and tell people about you know what bike products to buy and things. So I went up and did an interview there anyway, not really thinking much of it, <clears throat> and and got the job. And next thing I'm sitting down at a at a desk, you know, answering phones and email and, and that sort of stuff. And back then the company was it was quite small. I think they had about sixty five or seventy staff in total. Right. Um, back then, were they, were they still in Doak at that time, Alistair? Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah, they right. were still in. They were in Doak in the big warehouse um, mm-hmm. by that stage. Uh, and I knew one or two of the guys that worked there, sort of, um, but not really. Um, you know, again, there were a couple of guys from from Bangor that worked up there that were in the local scene. So I went up there and 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 did a job for the first couple of months answering emails and whatnot. Um, and it was brilliant, and I loved it. It was it was good seeing all these bike parts. You know, especially I'd never seen as many handlebars in one place in my entire life. You know, it was just 
<laughs> you, you can't get over the scale of it. It was a, it's huge, huge, huge warehouse, and and as a you know a reasonably young young guy coming in who's enthusiastic about the sport, you know this was like this was like heaven coming in and seeing all this stuff. And my learning curve was was rapid up there. You know you, you're answering questions and getting people talking to you and all the time about products and you, you know and even the training. You know you you would have got you know brands coming across from the mainland or from even as far as America and educating you on their products you know if it was crank mm. brothers or if it was and at the time they were selling all sorts of stuff they were selling snowboards and snowboard gears and i remember having a really really good product talk about a set of snowboard boots and obviously right. i was yeah. i was blown away that somebody could could sell something to you that you didn't want and straight away i went out and bought these snowboard boots and i was like better better plan a trip or something here <laughs> to use these things with but i, I loved it so i did two or three you know, i think it was two years there um, and I progressed through from the sales point of view through to warranty, and um, the, there was a warranty manager, just one guy at the time, and he he was leaving to go and travel the world and find himself. So I thought, well, I'd take that job. Um, so I moved across and uncovered Pandora's box of all these <laughs> unanswered emails and un, unanswered warranty claims. And but I, I really enjoyed that. And again, I think you know I was given that opportunity because I seemed to have a bit more of a technical approach to the mm-hmm. you know the the, the products and. Uh, and that was that was brilliant. Um, really enjoyed that, and then I sort of dabbled in and out of the the workshop a little bit. As a, as a, as as running the warranty department, you were constantly in touch with these guys in the workshop, and right. yeah. So I was watching what they were doing and thinking that looks like a cool a cool job. Mm. Uh, fancy a bit of that. Yeah, cool. And were you thinking even then that you you kind of wanted to progress your career through mm-hmm. chain reaction? I don't know at that time. I, I, I could see. Um, I could see people working there in different roles, um, but I, I, honestly, I don't. I didn't really know. Still, at that stage, what I wanted to do, I suppose, I was thinking, well, at that time in my life, all I wanted to do was ride my bike. You know, I wasn't career driven. I wasn't focused on what I was going to do and what it would, you know, what would become of of my future. So, I actually, made the decision that I was going to, instead of continue to work there, I was going to try and go to to ride my bike or spend a summer riding my bike somewhere and. In the process of answering emails and warranty claims and that sort of stuff, one of the more popular calls that would come through around April, May time was was all these mountain bikers saying, right, I'm, I'm heading off to Morzine for a week in the summer. Um, I need new tires or can you send me brake pads or whatever? What's this, that? So I, I became an expert on tires and brake pads for Morzine trips. And, uh, and then I thought, well, what this place, Morzine, sounds pretty good. I'm going to go and, and check it out. So while I was still an employee there, I went and, and did a week over in Morzine. And I thought, this is this is the ticket over here. So after two years working, I'd, I'd, I'd lined up. I decided to line up and do uh, you know spend a summer working over there. Mm-hmm. So I phoned around and got in touch with a few people um, through just and, and again that's a it shows how small the, the 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 mountain bike community is. You just have to send one or two emails or make one or two calls, and you you know people just want to always guide you to the right answer. It's, it really is brilliant. And and so I'd, next thing you know, I'd, I'd lined up to go and spend a summer working as a mechanic in a shop, and I'd got my accommodation lined up. Everything was looking good, um, and I was I was dead excited to go and 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 do a summer in summer in Morzine, and that would have been around. 2008 i think that was going to be the summer the summer of 2008 i was i couldn't wait i was dead excited to go and do all that um but um i got a call out the blue from my friend ben uh ben reed who had just had a really good race season um and he had decided that he was going to need a bit more help to go and you know do the the 2008 season so he phoned me and says look would you come and help me at a couple of races you know i need somebody to help 
clean the bike, fix the bike, you know, help do some driving, you know, do but you know, basically muck in and, and do whatever needed to be done. Um, and I thought, well, flip, well, I'd love to help you out, but I've, I've just lined up to do this, you know, this summer job over in Morzine riding bikes, you know, and, and it's, it's going to pay me a wee bit of money. Not, granted, not a lot of money, but it's enough to live off and um, I'll be able to ride my bike every day, or so I thought. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sure. Lifestyle, lifestyle yeah, move. It's a lifestyle move, yeah. Um, so he was like, right, okay. So off he went and, and had a think about it. And then he eventually he came back and he said, right, well, look, I've managed to scrape a wee bit more money out of the out of the sponsors here. If if I could give you the full season, you know, if, would you come and do the full season with me? And I thought, oh, right, okay, bloody hell, what am I going to do? Um, so I decided that, well, these opportunities don't present themselves very often. So I thought, right, I'll give it a go. Um, so I sacked off the whole Morzine plan, um, <laughs> which was a bit of a bit of a gamble. And I said to Ben, right, let's let's give it a go. Let's do it and see and see what what comes of it. Um, and I was at a stage in my life where I, I suppose I was I was ready for a change. I was ready to get away. So I I sacked off the girlfriend, sacked off the house, everything everything got cut. <laughs> I had to cut all the and uh, and I said to Ben, right, let's go and let's go and do this. So we we packed the van up and uh, and hit the road out to uh, out to Europe. That was the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> and I at that stage, I was by far a qualified bike mechanic. I, I wasn't I wasn't all that handy with uh, with spanners and tools at that stage. Um, so it was a bit of a gamble on his part as well. Um, but luckily, you know, CRC were very supportive. They let me move into the workshop for the last sort of month, month or two before I headed off, um, you know, and, and try and learn as much as I could from the from the guys in there. And um, there's a guy called Brooks Coldwell who, uh, who ended up working as a mechanic for the CRC team. He was in there working in the CRC workshop at the time. So he, he gave me a few mm-hmm. secrets and, and brought me up to speed. So um, I'd, have been, I'd have been lost without him and, and some of the other boys in there. Aye, well, that's awesome. That was showing great great you know support for you. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, no, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was invaluable. Yeah, totally. So when you were working with the team, what was your responsibilities there? Um, so it was a bit, of, a bit of everything, really. Like I said, Gareth, it was... Um, you know, we packed up the van, off we went, and I would take care of some of the driving. It would help with the driving. It help with, you know, looking after the bike. And, and very quickly, I got up to speed on on what sort of maintenance needed to be done, you know, and how to fix the bike and how to build wheels and how to do all that sort of stuff. I would be, I'd like to think I'm a reasonably quick learner with that sort of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. uh, washing the bike, you know, organizing the race entry excuse me, organizing the race entries, um, planning where the races were, because quite often you just have a, a rough address. You didn't even know what country it was in half the time and how to get, how to get from, from A to B. And um, it just sort of developed. And, you know, even going out, doing the shopping, buying the food, cooking the food, organizing. You know, my, my, my role, as I saw it, was to try and make, you know, life as easy as I could for Ben so that he could concentrate on, on the racing because he'd been doing it by himself and, you know, looking after his own bike and doing practice and driving around, and it's a it's a really really tough job. Like any any of the the privateer racers that are still doing it now, it's it's really hard to explain just how tough the job is for those guys. You know, and we were still yeah. we were still privateering it um, massively, but you know, Ben was always very proud of trying to make it look like you know make make the best of what he had and, and try and build a team out of nothing and that and that paid off in the long run. I mean he's still he's still running a team now. But um yeah, I remember that first trip. We jumped in the van and drove off and he said, right, first race is in Slovenia and I had no I, I didn't even know where Slovenia was. It could have been in Japan. Yeah. So, you know, for all I knew, but quickly looked at the map and <laughs> we're like, all right, okay, this is a bit of a drive and off we went. So we drove for probably twenty four hours straight. The man that man doesn't like to stop. 
and uh, take a rest when we were driving. So wow. we ended up covering some amount of miles those those summers. But um, we drove off to to Slovenia, and the, the race site was was Maribor, and we parked up. And at that point, you know, I hadn't met any mountain bike racers, you know, outside of the country. And you'd read about them in the magazines and dirt magazine, and you'd seen them online and all that sort of stuff, but. Um, you park up and you start to see all these big names who you'd always looked up to. You know, these were your your mountain bike heroes when you were when you were growing up. So it was yeah. it was uh, it was a hell of an experience, you know. And 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 that went on. Then you know we did, I did four years working with Ben, and throughout that process, we, you know, we we ended up setting up the, a team with Dirt Magazine and with Norco and with with another guy Dan Stanbridge, and it was a really really good experience and, and I guess some of the experiences I had then have allowed me to have the confidence to to get to the position that I'm in today I suppose with with work yeah yeah because I'm sure being in that environment it must have built up your knowledge of how things work and things you see and all these top writers like I'm sure that has played a big part in what you what you do now or what you've done with nuke proof there recently yeah exactly and i suppose you're working at the what would be equivalent of the tops top tier of the sport you know if you were a formula one enthusiast it would be like becoming a formula one mechanic you know Mm. an opportunity that was just you know you couldn't you couldn't turn it down and yeah I, i learned a hell of a lot through the process and some of the people you meet and some of the way that they, you know, these were the world's best mechanics and these were the world's best technicians working for, for all these huge companies. And, you know, even down to some of the marketing, you know, you, you got exposure to a wide range of, I guess, different areas of the industry, um, but at a reasonably high level as well. And, and, you know, even watching the guys ride down the hill, you, you got a very quick, you know, understanding of just the pace that they're going at and the and the the stress that they're putting the products through as well. You know, yeah. it's it's not until you see it with your own eyes you think, right, okay, well, we Jimmy riding around Helen's Tower, you know, complaining about his handlebars not being stiff enough. It's a different story. Whenever you've got these guys that are you know properly putting the the, the stuff through through its paces, so yeah, I, I learned a hell of a lot, and I and I I had I suppose by that stage I was trying, I was almost starting to form a, you know, an interest in my own head of the product design side again it was all that engineering and you know the four years i'd done at college was starting to trickle back in and i guess re reinvigorate my enthusiasm for for the development of the products and and you know added to that i was seeing brands that i liked i was seeing brands that i didn't like i was seeing you know, the way things were designed and, and all of that was starting to unknowingly unknowingly to me at the time it was starting to gear me up for i guess doing the the role that i then moved into with with chain reaction yeah no very very interesting so you, you were a world cup mechanic for about four years was that Alison? Mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly yeah and in the middle of that i had oh, yeah. to you know i had to learn to be a photographer and a writer and a blogger and a journalist and everything you know it was <laughs> it, we, we were we were we were a couple of couple of blokes from newton arge trying to trying to you know make a make a dent in the industry so yeah, yeah. I had to go and learn a learn a lot of things but yeah mostly it was it was a it was a race mechanic and that went on for four years um essentially and coming close to the end of that time um i got a phone call at that my friend dylan that i mentioned at the start he he was working at chain reaction at the time and he he gave me a call and he said look these um these guys are, are forming a department here and they're starting to do their own product development and they've expressed an interest in in somebody that can help them realize the products in in 3d and do that engineering side of it you know because back then they only had you know they had a guy called dale mcmullen who was a he's a really really good engineer um, and he was helping 
do all the design work as well as running the workshop. You know, he was trying to multitask and, mm. and they would have done a lot of the design back and forward with the factories in Taiwan on a piece of paper, you know, and, and drawing mm. red lines on the frames and saying cut here and change this. And it was a long drawn out process. Now it worked. It worked for them. They were able to make it work and make great products. But I think they, you know, they, they quickly realized that they were at a point where they, they, they could maybe benefit and they didn't even know the answer at that stage. They, maybe they could benefit from having somebody that, that could help yeah. them, you know, take that to the next, the next level. So what kind of year was that? Was that 2010, 2011, something like that? So I think that was, yeah, that was around 2010. It was around the end of 2010. Um, so I got in touch with them uh, and we, we, we had a bit of a chat. And at that stage, they were just about to release the, the first Nukeproof Mega frame. Um, mm-hmm. So I went up for the interview and they were showing me this cobbled together prototype frame that didn't look like much and was there were bolts hanging out of it and it was <laughs> it was far mm-hmm. from a finished article but they were they were all proud and they were about to to release this to the public and they wanted somebody to come in you know potentially and and, and help with what the next step was going to be um so the interview went well we had a chat and, and uh, i said well look this is what i think i could do for you they said look okay let's let's give it a trial run um now by that stage i already had committed to doing the following season with ben um because the way that that worked i would work during the summer with him and then in the winter you know essentially there wasn't so much work to do with the team um mm-hmm. so i would either you know work a wee bit part-time with chain reaction they were very good in helping me that or there's another guy joe ward who i think you know keelan had had maybe mentioned he was very yeah. good and he would give me work in the winter so that you know to help me pay my bills now granted i wasn't paying all that much money out at the time but every little helped mm-hmm. and, and it helped me i guess continue to live until the next summer season came through so i'd committed to do the following summer season um so they said well come and do three months over the winter with us and we'll see how it works out and if it works out then you'll have a job after the season (laughs) if it doesn't then at least we give it a try so that would have been 2010 so that then by the start of 2011 i did the i did the summer season working with ben and that was under the dirt norco team uh, umbrella and then september 2011 came and i parted ways with that um and then made a start um full-time at crc as a design engineer there yeah cool and you were you were mainly working with nuke proof and stuff like that but tell us a wee bit about the nuke proof brand and a bit of the history behind that and why chain reaction decided to purchase that brand yeah well when i when i first started i was i wasn't exclusively dedicated to new proof i was i was yeah. hired to, to to do whatever need, needs be done i suppose and it just so happened at the time that new proof was the the i guess the the horse winning the race you know it was the the the, the big pony that they wanted to back at that time now they did yeah. they did have other brands you know that existed that i did participate on prior to that but it was very quickly apparent to me that they wanted to to really try and do something special with new proof um it was originally a company in the states based out of michigan um from the 1990s right through and it lasted until about 2000 um and then went bankrupt for whatever reason they used to make all sorts of super lightweight carbon shell hubs and titanium bits and pieces um, um but then when the brand went went uh went bust the the owner was was selling the trademark so <clears throat> um crc at the time which was chris watson and and uh, michael Cowan, they decided they were going to buy the trademark so they bought it um for some amount of money and the they sat on it then for a while they were you know they they weren't sure what they were going to do with it is my understanding um but then very quickly uh, they would start to you know michael and and dale who was the r&d manager they, they would have been very interested in 
you know, I guess, modifying their trail bikes so that they could take them away and race the Meg Avalanche or, or make them make them handle slightly better on the downhill tracks that they had locally. Because, you know, anyone that rides downhill here, you, your bike's not much used to you. And, you know, a lot of the time the hills aren't massive. And, you know, what we know today is enduro, which didn't exist back then. You know, these guys were probably, you know, essentially... They knew what they they knew they wanted an enduro bike, but it didn't exist at the time. So they were mm. they were making wider bars. You know they had the connection with the factories in Taiwan through through the bigger CRC um, business. So they they had a vague idea of how to get stuff made. So they would go off and, and get titanium springs made for their bikes because they you know they they, they liked those Gucci items um, and they they knew mm. somehow how to get it made um, and wider bars. And then they wanted titanium bolts and bits and pieces. And and very quickly they were like, well. Well, we could sell all this stuff and we've got a brand name here in Nukeproof that, you know, essentially could could work for it. So they went about, you know, rebranding Nukeproof and relaunching it and its first couple of products were, you know, titanium springs and at the time wide bars, which were seven sixty mil wide. Now that's probably narrow almost these days, but um it just shows you. And then from they from there on they started to to grow and develop the components legs. So a lot of people think of Nukeproof now as as a bike brand, but its its early roots were were components. It was originally a components brand. It went a, yeah, it was a couple of years before it released its first frame and, and another year before it released its first bikes. Um, but mm-hmm. that was around the time that I, you know, I got involved with it and, and I whenever I first joined, I suppose my opinion of Nukeproof wasn't, you know, it wasn't of the highest um, I don't know how to put yeah, that politically. Because, well, I was curious about that, and I mm-hmm. was going to ask you what you thought of the Nukeproof brand initially when you came on board, and what you thought really your your most important role was going to be in kind of as a design engineer with Nukeproof, and and because they had done something similar with Vitus as well, mm-hmm. isn't that true? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, they they a similar story with Vitus. They bought the bought the brand, and then they they. They tried to uh, to relaunch it and build it up. Um, with but it was mostly bike. It is it was bikes and, and frames was the the target in it. But for sure, yeah. They um, my impression of Nukebrook at the time it, it wasn't it wasn't great. <coughs> Excuse me, it wasn't great. Um, I mm. it wasn't a brand. It was only new, so I hadn't much experience with it. But it wasn't a brand that I I didn't think their bikes looked all that brilliant. Now bearing in mind that's not a criticism. I'm coming from having worked on the race scene and seeing the best of bikes and seeing a lot of it was prototype stuff. So a lot of it was, you know, two years ahead of when it was even going to be released. So when I saw the new proof stuff, I thought, well, okay, I, 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 I get the brand name. I think it's cool. Not overly sold on the, on the frames, but you know, maybe I can, maybe I can try and have an influence on that and, and improve it somehow or other. And, and even down to the branding, you know, at that stage, the branding was, was still trying to find its feet. And I felt, I felt like actually, you know, um, I could have some sort of positive influence on this, ho- hopefully, you know, um, uh, and that's, that's when I, I suppose I started and working as a design engineer, it was, it was a bit frustrating at times because, you know, my remit was just to do the product design, you know, and just to design the frames. And, you know, if I, if I had opinions on colors or graphics or branding or messages, you know, sometimes that wouldn't necessarily be, be heard, um, which, which is fine you know it wasn't my wasn't my job to do that um but over time you know i got to the stage where i actually wanted to a bit like you asked earlier on did you see room for progression in your career through crc and i started to see an avenue i started to see well actually i could i could create a career out of this um and and really 
grow my skill set and grow the brand at the same time but i need i needed more control to to do that essentially mm-hmm. um so so that's when you know after about a year and a half or two years of working exclusively as a design engineer um i got in a discussion and managed to secure the brand manager role for nukeproof um so that would have been what year would that have been that was probably around 2013 I think 2012, 2013. Right. I progressed. So you were you were a design engineer for a couple of years anyway. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so you wanted to make the shift to brand manager, and um, that's that's what I love about your story, Alistair. Because whatever you've got into, you've been you maybe don't think it or see it, but you've been quite progressive and moving through, and 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 you know, and seeing things. Mm. And once you've learned that, you move on to the next, and you're better in yourself all the time. Yeah, and I'm sure Chain Reaction seen that in you. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I hope so. You know, I, I suppose I'm a firm believer in I wouldn't be where I am without those opportunities. You know, and and it's not it's very hard to you know to say to somebody else, well, why can't you just do the same thing? Because they might not have those opportunities. And and if I've learned one thing, it's that when an opportunity presents itself, you, you, you have to just, you have to take it. And sometimes it's the unknown, you know, you, you're not going to know what's on the other side, but you know, had I not fallen into the right class in school and met Andrew, I maybe wouldn't have found bikes. Had I not, you know, yeah. sacked off my trip to Morzine to go and work with Ben, I maybe wouldn't have, you know, found that passion for product design, you know, or had I not accidentally ended up doing engineering, you know, all those things, those opportunities yeah. that, you know, there were forks in the road and I just either by luck have fallen in the right direction or through choice have made, you know, taken the risk and made those choices. So yeah. I guess, you know, I, I, it's, it's, I'm very fortunate to have had those opportunities present themselves and allow me to get, you know, to get to those stages. But yeah, when an opportunity presented itself at CRC, yeah, I was, I was damn sure I was going to, I was going to go for it, not knowing where it would go. And, and again, that brand manager role was a provisional. They were like, well, we're not really sure. We've never had one before. We're not sure how it will work and what it'll look like. And I guess that was pressure on me to, to take it on and, and make a success of it and prove that, well, actually this role is beneficial. It is helping the brand and, and there should be more of these roles for, for other brands to, to do the same. And, and so that was, that was very much the case. Um, you know, and, and for the first kind of year, I think the first 12 months after taking that role on, you know, they were a bit slow in replacing my previous role. So I had to continue on as a design engineer for another year at the same time as juggling the brand management thing. So yeah. there were a couple of really tough years there that, that were very, you know, and at the time I was young, single guy, no commitments. It was it was perfect. It suited me. I could work as hard as I wanted. I could go and do as many travel trips as I wanted to do, you know, and, and it didn't it didn't bother me you know i i really loved it and i remember i remember you know designing all of the the second generation bikes the new dyno bike the mega it was split into two two platforms a trail bike and, a, and an enduro bike and there were a couple of other little you know hardtail dirt jump bikes they were all designed within the one year and then the prototypes arrived and there was no one else there i had to build them and file them and make them go together and put them in a van drive them out to Eurobike, you know halfway around the world to get you know to Eurobike on time and I loved it. It was really, really, it was hard work now. And I'm not sure I'd be in, in as much of a rush to do it, to volunteer myself to do it all over again. But it was really, really good. And, and it was a learning curve and an experience as well. So um, I really, I really enjoyed it. Really, really did. Yeah. And so were you working with the bike factories in Taiwan and stuff? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So pretty much as soon as I started um, at CRC, uh, you know, as, as a design engineer, that was a big part of the role was the communication with the factories and making sure, mm. you know, they, you're essentially 
putting a design together, you have to go out, find the right factory to partner with. You know, and many of the time we got turned down by by factories out there because the project was too complicated or we were too small or too inexperienced or whatever. And you just have to keep knocking on the doors and going to the next factories and 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 asking them if they'll make your frame. Um, but yeah, I would have been in constant communication, and and you know there were quite a few trips back and forward. Um, mm. You know, my passport's absolutely crammed full of Taiwan stamps. I don't know how many times I've been there now, and but it's. It, it's it's super important you cannot create a brand you know and make products without regular visits to taiwan if that's where you're getting them made you know it just it's so mm-hmm. important to and it's so important to build those relationships with those manufacturers you know and i've i've learned lessons the the hard way through doing that um as, a, as an employee at crc that that have stood me in good stead now but you, you, you have to learn trial and error i suppose i'm a firm believer in <laughs> You know, there's no such thing as failure. You know, it's just if you're going to fail, fail fast and and learn from it. You know, learn what the right way and wrong way to do things are, and, and then apply that to the next project. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, but I, I really enjoy it. You know, it, it's almost like a second home over there now. You've got lots of different friends and colleagues and people that have helped me. You know, in my learning curve that I would almost refer to as family now. There's, it's a really, it's a bit like the mountain bike community here. You know, the community over in Taiwan. You know, and I and I don't know what people's perception of the country is within the bike community a lot of people think oh it's a taiwanese made frame or it's this or it's that you know and but actually the people there are just like you would get at a mountain bike race here they're they're all about family and you know friendships and 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 you know respect for people and helping helping people out you know that and that's how the whole country and the industry works over there so it's it's uh, it's a really great place and i i enjoy i do enjoy when i get it a trip across to, to move a project along or to check on something or to to see the first prototype sample coming off the the factory line or something like that it really is a, a special special place yeah so as far as factories and stuff go over there is there many actually making the bikes is you know is there a handful of factories or is there 50 or 60 what would you what would you say um oh there's there are quite a lot yeah oh, there would be 50 60 100 200 factories oh, you know there's, really? oh, yeah really? and, and right. the thing about taiwan and it's not just taiwan it's china and vietnam and all those places but you know i, I it's taiwan that i would prefer to spend my time with um there are factories that specialize in in one thing you know there's there's a factory that you go to to get a stem made or a factory you go to to get an aluminium frame made or if it's a hardtail you go here or if it you know and it, it you have to and that's part of i guess where the the value in somebody as an employee is is them building up that understanding of who the right factory and the wrong factory are for a certain mm, product yeah. or for a certain customer you know there are big factories there are small factories you know and depending on exactly what your needs are and whether you need to be flexible or whether you're ordering five of something or 5,000 or something, you know, all those things play into, you know, selecting the right, the right factory. But Taiwan's a fascinating place. You know, you could have, it's, it's basically all of the capabilities condensed into one small island, you know, Um, and they have, and that's why I think starting a a brand and making bike products in Northern Ireland for talk's sake, it would be, it would be a, you know, virtually impossible because you don't have access to, you know, somebody that can CNC the part and then send it for anodizing and then get it laser etched and then get the packaging brought in and get all those all of those things that are often overlooked by the end user. They have to, they all have to be factored in to the price. They all have to be factored into making the product look right. And and Taiwan has specialised itself in making sure that they have the capability of doing 
all of those things, you know, 20 minutes from each other on the island. You know, you can, a trip there is quite intense because you will, you'll be spending a lot of time visiting one factory, then you'll drive 20 minutes down the road to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, and, and back forward. You know, it is, it's it's yeah. crazy to see it all so close um, to, together, essentially. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing, I'm sure. And mm. I suppose the advantage of that is that everything's near to hand there. So, you know, you don't make your frame and then it has to be shipped a thousand miles to get something else put to it and then shipped yeah. another five or six hundred miles it can actually basically leave taiwan mm-hmm. in a box ready to go to the customer or ready to go to crc yeah exactly exactly that yeah yeah and and, and yeah. as companies scale up and get bigger they do choose to to manufacture in different countries you know be it china or vietnam or whatever and, and there are commercial reasons for that but um taiwan is you know it's I suppose it's maybe underestimated or not not as understood so broadly but taiwan is where the brains are essentially like a lot of the factories in china or vietnam are owned by taiwanese people they're very intelligent and they understand the industry and they understand the manufacturing side um and the 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 level of skill and expertise there is is it's phenomenal you know and and being able to package that all together like you say in in one place and put it on a container and ship it to to wherever in the world the customer is that's that's i think that's why you know, it, it proves to always be the, the hub of the, the industry and and their, their level of design. You know, that that's where I think the UK guys or American brand and product managers come in is that they understand their customer and they understand what their customer wants. And it's up to them to create a design that suits that customer. And they then fly out with that design and they get the best people in the industry to produce it for them. Um, that's yeah. that's kind of the how it all works, I suppose. Yeah, and then I suppose... I suppose that's where the pricing structure and everything comes into bikes. Um, mm. Depending on what factory you use or what materials you use is yep. dependent on the price of bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure there's factories there that specialize in a cheaper range of stuff. Oh yeah. And there's factories that specialize at the top end of the market. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and but you know, quite often you you, you get what you pay for. Um, unfortunately, so you know, there. Yes, you can make a a cheap bike, but quite often it's it depends and again it depends what your customer expects and what they yeah, you know exactly. you can make a cheap bike but it's going to be a cheap bike um and, and that's the problem you know whereas and, and quite often if you if it's a if it's a cheap product you want you don't make it in taiwan you'll go to one of these further afield factories where they the labor costs cheaper or something like that um mm-hmm. but no yeah. taiwan specializes in in high end and that's i suppose that's a myth that that sometimes needs dispelled you know if a, if a bike comes from taiwan that that means it's cheap and nasty that's that's very much not the case um no. some of the stuff you know 95 percent, i would say of the bikes on the market today come from taiwan um and yes they might be designed in america or the uk or europe but they you know they're coming from a container that's leaving taipei port or taichung yeah yeah cool okay let's talk a wee bit about sam hill and your proof hmm, yeah very interesting yeah. <laughs> so could you tell us how Sam Hill became came to be riding the nuke proof? Um, it all had you anything to do with that? No, not directly. No, no, it all came through Nigel Page, who was running the team. Um, I think he was he was given the nod at one stage um, by Michael Cowan, who was essentially <laughs> holding the the purse um, that he wanted to to try and ramp the the image of the team up um, and and get a big get a get a rider that could secure podiums and potentially wins. Um, and Nigel had been talking to sam just as he does nigel's a very friendly guy approachable guy he would 
you know, he's been in the industry for a long time. He's a personality that everyone knows. And, you know, so whenever the time came that he got that call, he was like, okay, well, why don't we approach, why don't we approach Sam and see if we can get Sam, you know, and, and he, he, at that time he probably knew that it would have cost a lot of money to get him, but, you know, he'd had the, he'd had the nod from Michael that, you know, things were going well at CRC. They could probably afford to, to look for somebody of that caliber. Um, so it was really brokered with, with Nigel and, and again, Nigel's relationship, with riders and with people in the industry i think open a lot of doors that wouldn't be open to other people you know nigel is nigel still races doesn't he, he does yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, oh, he's, no, yeah. he's still he's still rapid <laughs> oh he's up there i know yeah, yeah for sure yeah, yeah for sure but he's a he's a great guy and and you know just he opens up a lot of opportunities for that team that maybe wouldn't necessarily be opened um otherwise so i think that 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 worked and i, I still remember to this day when we got the news that they were talking to Sam and, and it got to the point where, you know, there was an email come through or a phone call come through and it said, um, Sam's willing to, uh, to sign for the team on one condition. And we were like, all oh, right, what's this? And he said, he wants to, he wants to ride the bike first, you know, to make his decision. So this was the, this was make or break. So, you know, and this was the, this was the latest downhill bike. And it was the one that I, I'd worked on and designed and gone to the factory and, and produced. And, you know, Sam Hill wanted to ride this. And if he didn't like it, he wasn't going to sign for the team, so you know, as a young as a young Sam Hill fan, Nervous I was like, days. "Oh God, this is this could," you know. <laughs> and they they very nearly signed somebody else before him, um, another big name, but uh, that all fell through. But um, I think the right decision was made in the end, because um, yeah. you know Sam's been phenomenal for the for the brand and for the company. Um, but yeah, it was very nerve wracking having to yeah send that bike across to him and and, uh, <laughs> and wait for his wait for his feedback. Yeah, yeah, and you didn't go with it to make sure it was no, right no, no. We probably, were, oh, we okay. probably should have actually, but no, the bike was it was prepped, um, it was prepped in Belfast in Malusk beforehand, um, and boxed up and then sent out, and then we all sat around our computers waiting, <laughs> waiting, mm-hmm. yeah. waiting wow. for the call. But uh, luckily, it all it all went really well, and he was really he was genuinely really pleased with how the how the bike rode, and that was that was a that was a, a good day <laughs> when we got through. yeah. Yeah, it's amazing because I actually seen a post from him today on old social media, and uh, he was saying that he absolutely loves the new bike. Yeah. Absolutely loves yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think so, that, so that, that is, and I think that is genuine. It's a testament to the work that went on, and and you know, he he's a very particular guy, and he knows he knows when he when he likes something, and he knows when he doesn't. And we you know we've thrown a few mm. curveballs at him, you know, just for our own sake to try and validate that, and he always picks up on them straight away. So you know, he wow. knows what he he knows what he likes. He may not say much at the best of times but he he definitely uh he's he knows what he what he wants in a bike so yeah it's good and, and sam sam and and Kaylin now obviously would them guys be giving you back you know feedback and stuff like that as to what well, this doesn't work or i don't like this or can you change this yeah when i was at nukeproof we would have got yeah for sure the team were a valuable source of feedback and you know they're riding the bikes at the top level and and it, what we always had to do was try and balance the feedback of what the professional athlete wants versus what we think the customer wants you know and and it was always a very tricky debate to have um and i don't know i don't know if we ever got it 100 percent right um there, there will always be compromises to make but the, yeah the feedback from those guys were, was very good and like it said you know sam doesn't say much very often but when he does speak you listen and and the feedback that he has given has it has you know that latest mega carbon is it, it is as good as it is because of the feedback that he gave and you know that we did go through a lot of development and testing and revisions um to get it to that point so uh no and, and mm-hmm. yeah keelan's keelan's brilliant i've known keelan for a long time now and and i'm very fond of him and you know his feedback 
it may not be as technically, you know, I guess feeling based as Sam's might be. Mm. But you know, mm-hmm. Keelan, you know, if he knows something's not right again, he'll tell you. And actually, there's been some really good work done off the back of some stuff that Keelan has said about, you know, sizing and reach and you know proportions of bikes and stuff. So it's been very good. Plus, if you want something to break, you give it to Keelan. It just <laughs> It's a, it's a go, he's a go-to, uh, he's a go-to mule for putting miles on things. The boy put, I don't know how many miles he must ride a year, but he absolutely wrecks bikes. Um, and then if you want to find out if something's going to break or not, you give it to him and, and he'll soon tell you. So, uh, again, which, oh, which are very valuable, <laughs> very valuable. Uh, Eyes are legend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Alistair, you must be, you know, you must at, at the time you, when you were with Nuke Proof, you must have been so excited that the brand was doing so well. Mm, yeah. Was that was that exciting? You know, were you excited to be a part of all that? Oh, how could you not be? You know, it was a uh, it, it had come from reasonably tough times. You know, Nuke Proof had gone through a lot of challenges, um, some generated by itself. You know, and and by by being the structure or by following the structure that it was. You know, it, it was essentially a. a a house brand bike owned by Chain Reaction, which was the biggest online discount store, for want of a better word. Mm. But at the same time, it was trying to sell these new bikes through a dealer network. And, you know, that was a really, really tough obstacle to overcome because, you know, when Chain Reaction had too much stock, it had to, you know, the commercial said it had to discount things to get rid of them because we hadn't sold enough. And and that wasn't the fault of Chain Reaction. It was the fault of the fact that we had, we'd either over-ordered or we hadn't got the bikes in on time or whatever it might have been. And that constantly would upset the dealer network. So I worked for many, many years to try and you know, I put a lot of effort and blood, sweat and tears into trying to fix that that issue and fix that problem. And a lot of it's not seen. You know, a lot of it was, you know, below the below the surface and uh, it was a very difficult thing to overcome. But I actually think Nuke-proof, the, the success it's having now is because we've just got that recipe right. You know, we're ordering the right enough, right amount. Well, sorry, we're not, you know, they're not ordering too many. Um, quite, quite mm. the opposite now. Um, and the dealer network is good and stable. The dealers have got the right, bikes at the right price they're getting them on time and the demand is there because of the work that nigel and sam hill are putting in by promoting the team and and you know also the, the marketing manager rob at new proof is he is fantastic and you know i can't take any responsibility for the marketing side of things he came in three years ago and absolutely blew the doors off you know the brand image you know and, and it was a collection of the right people at the right time i think that have helped you know, Nukeproof get to that point. Um, you know, with him starting and thinking differently about it, and and just talking to journalists and proving that the product was good. You know, all of those things, you know, culminated in actually what the brand that you see today. Um, and I think it's again, it's a, it's a there's a really strong team behind the brand, and and hopefully it it'll continue on um, with the successes that it's had so far. But it, it's been very, it was very exciting. It was hugely beneficial to me to see the success that the brand has gone through. And, you know, I was constantly driving and driving and driving to, you know, to tweak the volumes or tweak the designs or change this color or do what, you know, there were so many things that I always thought could have been improved again, but you, you learn every year and every year you do something a little bit better. Or you address one of the things that you couldn't address last year and, it's a constantly ever evolving um, beast, mm-hmm. I suppose. But yeah, I'm I'm really pleased with with where Nukeproof got to um, before I before I finished up, um, and may long may it continue. Yeah, and the Vitus the Vitus brand, Jake or so you can't go out for a ride without seeing a Vitus. No, <laughs> no they've got their local territory stitched up. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, 
And, you know, I know a lot of people may not like the fact that chain reaction is so big and, you know, it obviously hurts the small local stores, which I'd be all on for as well. Mm-hmm. But it has done so much for mountain biking coming from this area. It has. You know, it's helped so many riders and... I don't know. It just it just helps the it just helps Ireland or Northern Ireland or whatever way you want to look at it. It just yeah. helps that and and total life. Yeah, and and that's that's often overlooked. They do you know there's a, the yeah. team behind you know Chain Reaction and Venus and all of those house brands. You know they're a passionate team of guys that do ride bikes. You know and they 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 live and breathe the sport and you know they they have it. They do have a desire to help you know the industry and help this country in particular and its riders. You know. Granted, they're a small part of a big company, mm-hmm. and you know the company has lots of bills to pay. It has a commercial driving force that you know it has to make money and do all these things. So it's it can often be a tough battle. But what what a lot of people don't see is that this this team behind the scenes that are pushing and pushing and pushing to try and secure marketing budget to support the local races. And you know we've all been on the receiving end of of a bad rap from the local scene you know, for not supporting enough and not trying to help. But, you know, they, it's very easy to criticise what you haven't done, whereas it's not so easy to praise what has been done, um, if you know what I mean. And, and it's a great, yeah, yeah, there's there's a great desire to support the local scene. You just can't do everything for everybody. But, you know, I think Vetus, you know, the Vetus side of things, they do a brilliant job at supporting the local scene. Um, and I know that if they were if they were given a bit more support, they would try and stretch that further afield into the mainland UK a bit more as well. But, um yeah, it's not easy, and and I, and I guess it's you know like I said at the start, if you come from this country, finding a route into the industry to be successful, whether you want to be a racer, an athlete, uh, you know, an engineer, or you know whatever job you decide you want, it's very very difficult to do that from this country unless you either you know can secure a job with Chain Reaction, you know, or you have to move across to the mainland. There are very few opportunities in this country to work in the bike industry um, or to be successful in the bike industry. And, you know, the, you either have to create them yourself or or, or travel and, and be prepared to take some risks to find those. Yeah, and I think that's what people don't don't think of Chain Reaction. just see it as a, a mammoth retail outfit. Mm. But, you know, if, if you look at the opportunities it's given mm. people, you know, like Kaylin, like Lewis and Kieran from Make Money, mm. you know, them guys have come from Chain Reaction. Look what they're doing now. It's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, exactly. I, you know, myself included. You know, I, I, if there's one thing I must say, like I would not be in the position I am now without the support that I got from Chain Reaction. So, you know, I'm not saying that they're perfect. And I know that, you know, there are varying opinions on the place. Um, but it's been very good to me over the years. And granted, it's going through a change period now. You know, it's not the same company it was, you know, 24 months ago. Mm. But, you know, who knows what the future will bring. And, you know, there may be more support coming down the line that we can't see just yet. Um, but for sure it has, it's helped a lot of people to find, you know, a way of involving their love of cycling with their career, you know, with their careers. And, and it supported, it supported me, you know, when it didn't, when it didn't have to. Um, so I'm very, I'm very grateful for it. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Let's, let's move on and talk about your own business. Cause you left chain reaction at the end of 2017. Yeah. Uh, what did you get as a leaving present? Um, I got, I got actually, I got a really nice uh, hip flask with a bottle cage mount that goes on my uh, goes on my little gravel bike. Probably pretty smart. Right. <laughs> now the guys in there, they got me. Uh, they all chipped together and got me a couple of a couple of really nice nice bits and pieces. So uh, happy day. Yeah, it was good. And were they sad to see you go? Oh, well, they said so. I'm not so sure, but. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have no idea. I have no idea. I, it's a brilliant. It was a brilliant team. Really, it's a, you spend yeah. a lot of time with these people, so you, you kind of have to like each other and get on because you're you're spending more time yeah. with them than you do with your wife and kids at home sometimes. So exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. So so you left to to start your own company, Redburn Designs, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll put the links and that on the show notes there. Yeah. If, if people want to check that yeah. out. But what was your decision for leaving Chain Reaction? Um, I think you know the. I've always strived, not even knowingly so, but I've always strived to progress. And you touched on it earlier. I've always wanted to be, well, what's yeah. the next thing? What am I going to do next? And what, you know, where where is my life going? If I'm not moving forward, I feel I get a bit down in the dumps and feel like everything's just a bit stagnant. Um, and I had, you know, investigated what opportunity was for me at, at CRC and more recently Wiggle CRC. Um, and with, with that merger, the opportunity... I believed was becoming smaller and smaller for me. Um, mm-hmm, okay. So, you know, and I, I tried to create new positions or interrogate and see what, what, what might come of it. But it was basically, you know, the decision was made pretty quickly. Well, okay, this, this, this is not for me. I need to start thinking about what it is I'm going to do next. And, you know, it was very hard mentally to make that decision, especially with Nukeproof being so successful and being on an upward, you know, being an up, up you know yeah. nobody wants to step away from something when it's when it's on the up but likewise i also didn't want to step away from it when it was on the down and i and i you know i stuck with it through the hard times and i thought well actually you know i need to take nuke proof out of this this is not about nuke proof this is about me and what i'm what i'm doing for mm. you know that's best for me and and my family and my my career i suppose so um i i didn't really know what i was going to do i knew i wanted to work for myself um Mm-hmm. I don't know how I knew that. I just knew that I wanted to, you know, I wanted the flexibility, I suppose, of of being able to, you know, set my own hours or go for a bike ride at lunchtime if I wanted to, or, you know, take a day off or work on a weekend or, you know, all those sorts of things. So I knew that I wanted to that. And I, I wanted to have more control, essentially, over decisions being made. Um, and as an employee within CRC, Nukeproof, you know, it had a lot of stakeholders involved and that was probably one of the, probably a benefit to it at the same time, but it was one of the biggest things that would hold it back at times. Um, you had far too many people, far too many opinions, all all of which needed to be satisfied and quite often the decision that popped out at the end had to be a, a compromise um, because of that. And I didn't want that to be the case. I wanted something that I could work on and build and be really proud of. And I was, I'm still to this day very proud of the work I did at Nukeproof, but you know, it's, it's like a stepchild, you know, it wasn't mine to begin with. I've come in, I've hopefully left it in better condition than it was in when I found it. Um, but ultimately somebody else, it's somebody else's baby. So uh, I wanted to, to do my own thing. Um, and throughout the process, you know, it probably took me the guts of nine to 12 months to really make the decision that I was going to leave um, and do my own thing. You know, deep down, I, I thought I would always do it, but I just didn't know when the timing would be. And, and with all the recent changes at, at, at Wiggle and CRC, it just made it, it made itself, you know, it made sense to do it, to do it at this stage. Um, and that's incidentally where the name Redburn came from. You know, I would have got up and it was, I remember last summer, you know, every morning I would get up and I would take my bike out. You know, I've got a young son and he was, he was waking up really early um, so, so i'd be waking up at you know quarter to six every morning because like well he was waking me up and i was i would pull out my uh, my gravel bike and i'd jump on in the morning before work and i'd go for a spin and i live in hollywood and there's a there's redburn forest which is just up on the hills above above hollywood mm. and i would go up there you know a couple of times during the week every morning and i would cycle up and it's only a short loop it's about 40 minutes 45 minutes to come out to, to, to do a loop 
and uh, mm-hmm. get up to the top of it. You've done the whole big climb. Get to the top, and you look out over Belfast, and you can see the harbour, and you can see the Titanic building, and you can see across. And I could see across to the motorway that would take me up to CRC. And I would often sit there and look out, and look at that motorway, and look at Belfast, and look at you know what it is I'm going to do, and and try and work out what I'm going to do. You know, at that point, I didn't know. Yeah. So, you know, I I did a lot of. Uh, not soul searching that sounds a bit corny but a lot of thinking you know about what my future was going to be in that in that forest on those rides and that's so that's where the that's where the name came from um and you know i suppose after a while i thought well what are my skills what what are the things that i think i can add and you know when i'm at a trade show or when i was working with nuke proof at at an event or something you know lots of people would would talk you'd have conversations a bit like i said you know the industry's built in relationships and you would have conversations with other product managers or other designers or whatever or other marketing guys and quite often i find people asking me questions about how you know problems they were having in taiwan or problems with manufacturing or issues here you know and you know i was almost i was starting to dish out bits and pieces of advice and then so then i thought well mm-hmm. you know can i can i monetize that can i turn that into business because i have my design background i now have the experience from traveling to taiwan and on the steep learning curve that i went through you know to get to a point where i feel comfortable you know manufacturing in taiwan and understanding the bigger picture and in more recent years when i was more co- commercially focused on nuke proof you know understanding you know, the value of money and the costs and the imports and the exports and all of that side of things, all of these things were building up into a set of skills. And I thought, well, how can I, how can I use those to, to benefit somebody else? Cause I, you know, I suppose I've always been, I've always got something out of helping other people. You know, when I, when I worked yeah. with Ben as a mechanic, you know, I didn't get paid for the first two years. It, it, you know, he covered my expenses, but essentially it, it cost me a bit of money to go and do that. But by, by helping yeah. somebody that needed help, I got a lot out of it. And that was, you know, that's always been a message for me throughout my life, I suppose. And, and so I'm trying to work out, well, how can I help people and, you know, make the same money that I was making in, in when I was an employee in CRC? You know, if I can achieve those things, then, well, actually, I'll be, I'll be, in, I'll be pretty happy, pretty satisfied. Um, I wasn't setting out to make millions and millions of pounds, you know, but if I can have a lifestyle that I enjoy and, and, be able to go and ride my bike and do all those things then that's a that's a win that's a success for me so mm-hmm. so yeah i uh there was a trip to taiwan in october um 2017 um it's an annual trip it's called taichung bike week it's where all the product managers go out and they speak to shram shimano fox they speak to all those manu- the big manufacturers and find out what the new products are going to be for the following model year so it's, you're seeing new products that are probably 18 months ahead of their official release to the public yeah, wow. went out there um, and I knew that I had to you know, get the information so that I could spec the 2019 Nuke Proof range um, and I sort of knew at the time this will be my last trip under the employee of CRC so I'd made the decision that when I come back from that trip I'll, I'll have a notice in and I'll, I'll decide what I'm going to do after that. <laughs> Even at that point I didn't really, <laughs> didn't really know what I was going to do so uh, it was a good trip and I came back and I organised a meeting with, with my boss and um, and that was that. Then I, I, I sat down on the, I think it was a Tuesday morning, handed me notice in, and then started thinking about what I was going to do um, after that, I suppose. Um, so mm-hmm. I had, yeah. And I'm sure I'm sure that must have been <clears throat> a pretty scary step. You've got a young kid. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, you're leaving, you're leaving a regular income to go out yeah. 
go out on your own did you have support from your wife and your family and friends and stuff to make yeah for sure well i think that's why it took me 12 months to build up to it (laughs) it is it's definitely a scary it is a scary moment and and you know continue to be but yeah i've i've got a great network around me and you know had huge support from you know parents and from my wife and and you know although she did drop a bombshell just before christmas that she was gonna she'd quit her job as well which wasn't wasn't ideal oh, wasn't wow. ideal timing okay. but um she she runs little fitness classes now and she actually does better than she did when she was at work so it's it's not it's not so bad um, but yeah for a wee while there it was a wee bit there was a bit of a bit of panic or a few cutbacks made around the house for sure mm-hmm. um but I, I knew i had yeah. three months notice to give at crc so i, I sort of figured right well I'll, you know I'll, I'll have three months to work out what i'm going to do and i'll have, you know another three paychecks before i'm i'm really high and dry here but yeah for sure that you know this the huge support from all around the the country and you know people that i had met through my you know my my years working in the industry you know there were so many people came out of the woodwork to offer support you know lewis and karen and mac monkey and joe ward at potato bread all those guys you know they were like if you ever need a cup you know if you need work here and ben reed was the same you know if you if you need money and you need a bit of work we've got work on you know so many people came together and said look we'll support you to do this. We think you're doing the right thing. And, and, you know, here's, you know, you'll never be, you'll never be stuck. And that, that's invaluable. You know, that just shows the strength of, of the, the network that, that exists around, around Ireland. So, um, yeah, that, that gave me a bit of confidence for sure. And, and then, you know, once I'd made the decision that I was leaving, you know, when I could almost start to think about, you know, telling people and talking to people about that then it started to open opportunities and people would start to talk to you and say right okay well if you're finishing work and, and you're going to do this well okay we'd like you to help us and you know so i talked to two or three people and, and i had a few leads that i thought okay at least i've got some security that whenever i you know on the, the day after i've left um i've got some idea of, of where i might go to, to bring some money in yeah. um so yeah it was that took a bit of the sting out of it but it's still a, it's still a scary it's still a scary process to go mm-hmm. through yeah, so tell us, Alistair, then what Redburn Designs is and what it is you do. So essentially, it's a it's a design house, a design and branding house. So we will essentially work with clients to on on many aspects of things. So if somebody wants, you know, just an out and out design done, uh, we can do that. We can do the engineering side of it. We can organize the graphic design. We can organize the marketing, video creation, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then a big part of it is the sourcing in Taiwan. So a lot of people, I think the biggest barrier for a lot of people is when they've got a design, they don't know the first step to to getting it made. Um, so, you know, we have a whole network of, of manufacturers in, in Asia that uh, we can partner the client up with and then help talk them through the process you know the do's and don'ts of how to how to essentially get the product um from concept through to uh, to production um so there's a whole a whole pile of services that we offer but essentially it's anything in the bike industry that you would like to to create even if that's starting a new brand from scratch you know we can assist in in, in all areas of that so it's it's really drawing on a lot of the the skills that I've learned over the years, but I've also got a really good network of guys around me that can, you know, help assist in, in various other elements of it um, as well. And it, so it's really is a, a full package. If somebody wanted to to start a brand from scratch, we could do every element um, of that as well. So it's, yeah, it's, it's very exciting. And so far things are going off to a bit of a rocky start, but things are going well now. <laughs> Brilliant. Awesome. Awesome. One-stop shop for your own bike ah, brand. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> Um, did you ever think about producing your own brand? Um, yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I have those thoughts every now and again, but it's it's a, it's very challenging. There's a lot of 
there's a lot of cost involved in doing it you know and like mm. i said my goal isn't necessarily to make you know huge amounts of money what i what i almost get more enjoyment out of is helping other people to realize what they want to do um you know that mm. probably doesn't make commercial sense to a lot of people but it's what i enjoy and it means that i can really back support and believe in in the projects that i work on it's not to say that someday i won't you know try and develop my own my own product range or brand or whatever that might be but um for now i'm concentrating just on the on the clients that i've got um for a couple of years and, yeah. and, and to build that to build that up um, i think that's that's kind of the direction i want to go in and always did want to go in from the from the start yeah i think you would need a serious amount of capital to start your own bank yeah account. yeah for sure and, and that's one of the things i you know I'm, I'm helping clients work on that sort of stuff as well and understand the, the money involved in it and so, sometimes that can turn yeah. a client off straight away when you when you tell them the facts of what it would realistically cost to go out and produce something in taiwan but some people you know they understand that and they they get bored you know yeah. so it's I'm, I'm fully aware of the cost involved and i'm i'm not really in a position that i want to <laughs> to involve myself in it mm. just yet but yeah maybe in the future guys yeah. maybe maybe yeah and what kind of can you tell us what kind of capital you would need to do something like that i i'm sure there's all different levels yeah there's yeah i mean there's a million different ways to skin the cat but um if you you know it depends what you wanted to do if you wanted to go and start your own bike brand tomorrow yeah it depends what you would want to do if you want to design it yourself Mm -hmm. and design the geometry and the the shapes and all of that you, you know you wouldn't see much change you know from probably 200k to you know by the time Wow. Open all your tooling and order your first batch of bikes and market the thing and have a website or, you know, work out a sales agent to sell to dealers, whatever. You know, there's a lot of money involved in, in starting it. And that's why you don't see many, many startups these days. But, you know, at the same time, there are, you know, there's a bit of a resurgence of, of smaller guys, you know, coming even out of the UK that are that are making it work. And, OK, they're having to make some compromises maybe on on, on what they would want. You know, they're, they're having to, you know, lean on the factory you know, to supply some open model parts or whatever to get them, you know, some of the way, but they're, they're giving it a good go and, and it's really admirable to see. So there, there are more affordable ways into it. Um, and it really, you know, it, that's why I suppose I'm saying Redburn is a tailored package. You know, there, there are a million and different, a million and one different ways to, to do what you want to do, but um, sometimes you just have to find the right, the right path or be at the right factory or, or you have to be willing to make some compromises on, on what it is that you want. Um, and that's part of the, the process I would go through with a client is, you know, they'll, they'll talk about a design brief and, and then you'll ask them, well, you know, how much money are you prepared to spend? And, and if the two don't line up, then that's when you need to get into the nitty gritty of really working out what's important um, to, to the customer. So. Yeah. And what I love about what you're doing there too is you could have the best brand in the world, mm-hmm. but actually getting it to market and getting people to know about it is a completely not oh thing. massive yeah yeah the pro- the product design's the easy part it's the it's finding yeah. the money and the the understanding of the process you know and and likewise you could come in with a big you know a big bank balance full of cash and say and go to Taiwan and say right I want I want these bikes made to produce but you, you can't even do that you know you you have to. Taiwan very much works off relationships and understanding of the processes. And if you don't understand the process and, you know, and follow each step methodically, it doesn't matter how much money in the world you've got, you'll just lose it. They'll just, they'll take it all and, and you'll get nothing out of the, you know, out of the other end of the machine. Um, so there's, there's, there's no easy way to do it. And, and I guess that's why, you know, I believe that there is room for, you know, my, my business to, to, to sort of grow and, and service, you know, different parts of the industry because it is such a complex um, process that you need to you do need to understand various different parts of it 
Yeah, no, certainly. I, I think I think you've tapped into a very a very good and helpful niche for yeah, sure. I hope that, so. Um, you know, because your knowledge in the industry over the years is, you know, how do you? But you can't you can't do that yourself. You can't buy that. No, you know what I mean. No. Um, you know, and as you say, it, it happens over a number of years and building up relationships. Yeah. And as you say, you can't buy no, that. No, definitely not. No. Well, you can, well, you can now. <laughs> you can, but you can through yourself. But you know what I mean? You can't, it's like you say, you couldn't just go out to a factory in Taiwan yeah. and say, I need this yeah, bike. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. Then, you know, the guys that have been doing it for a long, long, long time, you know, by the time they've built up the knowledge of that, you know, they're at the stage where they're wanting to move on and progress into different you know, careers and, and different areas within their roles. So there's, you know, and I've noticed that very much, that there's much, you know, there's much younger companies coming through now that they're the ones that, that need the, either need the help or need to be prepared to set themselves out on that journey of, you know, trial and error. You know, so there's, mm-hmm. there is a, a young blood coming through that's in charge of the new, you know, the new batch of product design, you know. So it's, yeah, yeah. hopefully it all, hopefully it all works Interesting. out. Yeah, cool. And, as far as Redburn Designs goes, Astro, can you tell us anything that's happening in the future? Is there any big brands we can expect to see um, popping their heads that's up? That's not soon? my place to talk on behalf of the clients, but <laughs> we've got a couple of projects on, you know, and, and a lot of them are long term, you know, so, you, you know, it would be probably 12 months before you'd see anything over there. But yeah, for sure, there's a couple of really exciting projects. Uh, couple of really exciting projects on and as soon as i can tell you more i i, I will you'll start to see this stuff on social media dripping forward but uh and are these new brands are um, these new yes market? essentially so yeah okay yeah 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 uh, excellent happy day but yeah the the uh it's a long it's a long process as well people think they can start a brand and tomorrow they'll have samples and the next day they'll be able to tell customers about it but it's there's it's a, it's a long drawn out process you know that's that's part of the strain on the investment as well is that you've got to you've got to be prepared to wait 12 to 18 months before your 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 new bike is finally ready to to sell to somebody so it's exciting i and and it's crazy because i used to be involved in the you know the surf industry mm. and the fashion side of things and everything and it kind of worked eight to 12 months in yeah. advance yeah. but you're saying the bike industry is more like 18 well if you set out to do a, yeah if you set out to design a brand new bike from scratch you know the development of the frame alone would probably take you 12 months to to you know 12 to 18 months it really depends you know how intensive your testing is uh, in between that and, yeah. and i guess it depends how how often you visit taiwan and stay on top of the project you know those things can drag out drag out you know without without proper care and attention um but then yeah. you know if you're going to turn it into a bike and get all of the components attached and built up and shipped across you know the shipping takes a long time it takes you six weeks to ship a container of bikes across to, to northern ireland and then you've got to you know take them out of the container get it it all adds up that's one thing i've learned the hard way yeah. is that every little day yeah. uh, you know adds on and adds on and and uh, you've got to really monitor almost on a daily basis what's what's going on with each project yeah. but yeah it can it can take it can so, take some time for sure yeah so you know having somebody like yourself in redburn designs is invaluable because you could start a bike design and in six or eight months time when you're almost getting to the end or you know where you want to go that could almost be out of yeah there. yeah well this is the this is the challenge this is the crystal ball that you have to <laughs> you kind of have to have yeah. and you know the industry is very it's good it's good in a way at, at educating you know the product managers on on what's coming down the pipeline you know these these, these big the whole industry 
quite often is driven by the bigger players. You know, they're putting the demands in mm. for, you know, for a different shock or a different fork or new drivetrain or whatever. But yeah, part of the part of my probably one of the more important roles I did at Nukeproof was was to just constantly be in touch with those guys and understand what's coming down the line. You know, when one by drivetrain took over, that changed things. Whenever boost hub spacing took over, that changed things. And you know, you can imagine, like you say, if you're six to twelve months into a, a design process and then somebody tells you that they're changing the hub spacing and your frame is all of a sudden out of date or metric, metric shocks. A lot of people got caught out with metric shock sizing because all of a sudden their frames didn't fit these new suspension um, standards. You, you have to be so on it with all that stuff to know what's coming down the line so that you can either accommodate that in your design or react to it, you know, and, and make some last minute alterations. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's funny enough. It's, it's easier for a smaller company to make those changes than it is a bigger one. Um, so that's, yeah. but a lot of small companies don't understand that they don't they don't allow themselves the the breathing space to to be able to react to those things. Mm. And I suppose, like you say, the bigger companies with budgets for R and D, research and development, mm. they're pushing all the new research and stuff, so they know what's happening more or less, and then the the market just reacts. Quite often, yeah, yeah. It's very it's very rare that a small you know a small company or a small bike brand would come through with something completely revolutionary. You know, not because they, they they haven't got the ideas, but more just because they're trying to push it upstream. And if the big you know if specialized Trek and Giant don't want it, then they have enough power to almost bat it down and say, well, no, we're not going to let the suspension company or the hub company or whatever it might be to, to do that. So there is a lot of that mm-hmm. internal, you know, competition that goes on. So yeah, it can be, it can be tricky enough to, to juggle the whole thing, but um, for sure it's, it's an interesting environment. I get very excited about it, you know, just constantly wonder what's going on and what's changing and, and what opportunities might then be presented because of that. No, it is. It's fascinating. I, I love it. Yeah. I, I love that insight into the industry. I, I think it's amazing. And with mountain biking the way it is now and the growth and mm. the technology that we've yeah. seen over the last two to three years, the, the way things are changing, it's so Yeah, oh, it's phenomenal. You think about everybody. You know, when I talked about, you know, when I first joined Nukeproof, they were making that, that mega that could, you know, essentially pedal up and ride down the downhill tracks. You know, people are now riding around. You know, a modern-day enduro bike is... is as capable, if not more capable, than the downhill bikes from five or ten years ago, but it's got mm. you know, mm. but they're lighter weight. They're you know, they're more capable at pedaling. You know, you could you just like you say, technology has just revolutionised the whole thing, and and nobody knows where it's going to go in the future as well. You know, every year yeah. people say, oh, that's it. There's nothing else they can do. What 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 can they do to improve things? And then the following year, something comes out and you go, oh, well, yeah, they could have done that. Yeah. What about gearboxes? Have you had? <laughs> I've had, a, I've had a lot of discussions <laughs> about them, um, but I've not used one and I've not included one in a design. Um, and I think that debate's been going on for a long time, hasn't it? I do agree. I do agree yeah. that derailers hanging off your back wheel are risky, but uh, I think gearboxes still do have a wee bit a wee bit to go before they can, uh, I guess, take over the mainstream. Um, but they're getting they are getting closer, and I suppose with electronics as well now, that's you know that's going to help. That's going to help things. Mm. Um, I think some of the big problems with the gearboxes are, are the way that they're actuated and so who knows i think gearboxes could well be you know more visible in the future but you know how small, how small can they make them and, and how quickly can they do it so yeah that's it that's it well here alistair i've taken up enough of your that's time all. sir and um I, I don't want to keep you any longer but how can people 
get in contact with you? How can they find you and see what's happening or get in contact if they, they need your service? Uh, yeah, so the, mostly it's it's through the website, which is www.redburndesign.com. Um, I'm on social media, although I'm not overly active on it. I'm not really a bit of a rookie with the social media. Um, so there's an Instagram and a Facebook page and a Twitter, if anyone uses that. Um, all again, all Redburn Design. Um, and then you can find me on, on Facebook um, as Alistair Beckett as well, <laughs> if you're yeah, that okay. way Brilliant. And who designed your website? It's a nice, lovely Yeah, lovely I've, so I have a, a friend of mine, Dylan, who I talked about at the start. He's uh, a bit of a jack-of-all-trades. He does graphic design, video production, and all sorts of stuff. Um, he, he, Yeah, he helped me a wee bit with it um, to get it to get it up and running. It's It needs a lot more work, though. <laughs> yeah, but it's beautiful. It's very clean and simple and nice and easy to navigate. Okay. I like That's, it. I've, yeah, I've not good. put anything on there, so it's easy to <laughs> keep. If you keep the content off, you can't, uh, can't get lost. Uh, but, no, yeah, very nice. Yeah. Well, Astor, listen, it's been an absolute blast. And you know what? I could chat to you for four or five hours on stuff. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's been good to talk um, to you guys. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I'm so glad that, you know, you've made that step and, and gone out yourself um, because I think you have a lot to offer um, brands wanting to, to to get better. And it would be beautiful to see more brands from, from here. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it would be fantastic, you know, and because we've got the trail networks, we've got more coming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. good. It's yeah. brilliant. It's a, a very exciting yeah. time. Yeah, no, and thank you, Gareth. It's been brilliant. No, I really appreciate you coming on, and I have to say a thank you to the Make Monkey Boys because <laughs> uh, they were the guys that pushed me to yeah. try and get yeah. me on the on the yeah, show. Good, so. good yeah, yeah. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Alistair. No worries, guys. I hope you enjoyed that. Man, I loved that episode. I loved chatting with Alistair, and Alistair, thanks so much for coming on the show, bro. I really, really do appreciate it. It was great to get you on, and uh, you're you're just you have so much info and insight into the industry. I can't see how anybody wouldn't be interested in that. It's um it's pretty awesome to to chat with you and get all that out onto the podcast. So thank you so much. And folks, for you listening, if you want to find out a wee bit more about Alistair's background or get in contact with Alistair or what he's doing now with Red Boom Designs, go to the website. The show notes are on there, episode number 36. The website is www.mtv-tribe.com. You will find all the info on there and links to Alistair's stuff and Alistair's contact details, etc., etc. So that is awesome. Do that. And also, if you want to get more involved, you can subscribe to the show. Again, just go to the website and the subscription um, section is there. You can fill that in. Also, get in contact if there's anybody you would like to hear from on the show or any info you would like or questions you would like answered on the podcast. Just get in contact. There is a contact field on the website also. So, folks, thanks very much. Um, again, if you want to follow, you can do that via social media, of course, Instagram at MTV Tribe and Facebook, MTV Tribe. And just thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And, you know, it's, I mean, I'm super stoked to get Alistair on the show. I really am. Um, and, and it was great. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you have any feedback from that show or you want a wee bit more insight or, or you're just not sure of something, drop me a line, drop me an email, info at mtb tribe.com i look at every message and get back to every email so if you do that that's cool i will get back to you maybe just give me a few days because sometimes i just don't get the time but i will do it as soon as i can so folks thanks so much thanks for being here i have a slightly different guest on next week but um she is very very exciting and going her own way in the mountain biking industry and really making a great success of it 
and um, it's, it's a great listen as well so hopefully you'll tune in next week I'll see you then take care on the trails have a great week